Hello, friends, and welcome to Into the Word, a radio and online program committed to reading, loving, and living the whole counsel of God. Lord willing, our intention is to go verse by verse and chapter by chapter through the entire Bible. Here to continue that journey is our Bible teacher here at Into the Word, Pastor Paul Carter. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. If you have your Bible with you, I'd love for you to open it now to 1 John chapter 5. As I mentioned at the end of the last episode, the chapter division here is really unfortunate. At the end of chapter 4, John was saying that if the love of God is truly inside you, then it will reach out in love for others who are born of God. The seed of God in you is like a magnet. It is attracted, and therefore you are attracted to others who are loved of God. John is still talking about that in the opening verses of chapter 5. So hear now the word of the Lord, beginning at verse 1. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. So if you are a true child of God, then you will be attracted to everyone, whoever, John says, has been born of him. You have a power in you. It's like you've swallowed a bag of magnets, and therefore you're going to be attracted to anyone else who has that same power inside of them. The children of God seek each other out and are drawn to each other in gospel love and care. That's what John is saying here as he continues on the argument found at the end of chapter 4. Verse 2. By this we know that we love the children of God, when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. Here John says something very interesting, and something that is somewhat counterintuitive to the evangelical mind. He says that love and law are complementary. When we keep the law, we love God. And we love others. And of course, that makes sense. It's not loving to God, to harbor rivals to God in our hearts. Well, that's commandment number one and two. And it's not loving to God to neglect our times of worship. Well, that's commandment number four. And of course, it's not loving to your parents to rebel against them or to neglect them in their old age. That's commandment number five. And it's not loving to your wife to have sex with other women. That's commandment number seven. And it's not loving to your fellow citizen to lie and to slander them in the court of law. That's commandment number nine. So no wonder the Apostle Paul said, love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. Now, whether you've ever seen that or not, John says that in the life of a real believer, your instincts and inclinations are going to tip you this way anyway. He says in verse 3 that the commandments are not burdensome, not to a real believer, because in a real believer, the Holy Spirit is inside you and is growing inside you and is inclining you in the direction of Jesus, who perfectly obeyed the law. So whether you know this intellectually or not, whether you've figured this out theologically, as a real believer, the seed of God in you is inclining you instinctively in this direction. He's pushing you toward and through the channel of the law. Thanks be to God. Verse 4. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Here now John is transitioning to the next topic. So in a perfect world, this actually is where the chapter division probably should be. John has finished his ode to love, and now he's getting ready to talk about the faith that overcomes the world. Verse 5. Who is it that overcomes the world? 
except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. So the faith that overcomes the world is a faith that affirms the full divinity of Jesus Christ. If you don't believe that Jesus is the Son of God of the very same substance and essence as God, then you are not a Christian. This is ground zero. This is foundational. John began his gospel in John 1.1 by saying, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And so this shuts the door on whole branches of Christian heresy. D.A. Carson, for example, says here, Stretch our imagination backward as we will. We can find no point in time where we may agree with Arius, who, speaking of the word, said, There was once when he was not. Closed quote. So if you think that there was ever a time when Jesus was not, like Arius, one of the first heretics did, then you are not a Christian. That's what John is saying. And this immediately disqualifies the Jehovah's Witnesses, the Mormons, and the Muslims. All of those religious systems can and do conceive of a time when Jesus was not. Therefore, according to John, none of those systems reflect the faith that overcomes the world. You have to believe in the Jesus who was with God and who was God from the very beginning. Verse 6, this is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. This expression is a little more difficult for us to untangle. There's a very long chain of Bible commentators stretching all the way back to St. Augustine who understand John here as making a shorthand reference to his own gospel. In John 19, 33 to 35, in a passage that these people would likely have heard dozens of times, John said this, But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs, but one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth that you also may believe. Closed quote. Well, obviously that fact made quite an impression on John. He actually pauses the narrative in order to solemnly declare that he saw blood and water gushing out from the body of Jesus as he hung and died on the cross. This was no apparition, John says. When that soldier thrust his spear into the side of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, I saw the death of a man. That is clearly the primary and most immediate sense of these words in 1 John 5, 6. But there may be more to it than just that. F.F. Bruce concedes the obvious and primary meaning, but then he goes a step further. He says, The sequence, water and blood, is not accidental, but corresponds to the historical sequence of our Lord's baptism and passion. Serinthus, we recall, taught that the Christ, a spiritual being, came down on the man Jesus when he was baptized, but left him before he died. The Christ, that is to say, came through water, as in baptism, but not through blood, as in death. To this misrepresentation of the truth, John replies that the one to whom believers acknowledge to be the Son of God, verse 5, came not with the water only, but with the water and with the blood. The one who died on the cross was as truly the Christ, the Son of God, as the one who was baptized in Jordan. Closed quote. 
So remember, the heretics were saying that Jesus started off as just a man. Then he became divine, as it were, at his baptism, but then became just a man again when the Christ spirit left him before he died, such that he died, finally, as a man and stayed dead. No, John says, the, the, the faith that overcomes the world believes that the Son of God was as truly and thoroughly the eternal Son of God, the Christ, at his death as he was at his baptism. That is the only Christ who saves. The, the Christ who is truly God, Son of God, and the Christ who is truly man. The church father, Athanasius, said famously, what has not been assumed has not been redeemed. If Jesus, as the Son of God, did not truly assume our humanity, then we are not saved. If Jesus was not truly God, and truly man, when he died upon the cross, we are not saved. But he was, so we are. Thanks be to God. That is the faith that overcomes the world. Verse 6b, and the Spirit is the one who testifies because the Spirit is the truth. So John has given his testimony, and then he says basically, I don't need to convince you, though. If the Spirit of God is in you, then you will know that what I am saying is the truth. Christians have always understood that it is ultimately the job of the Holy Spirit to convince people of the truth of the apostolic gospel. Paragraph 5 of chapter 1 in the Old Baptist Confession, for example, says, Our full persuasion and assurance of the infallible truth and divine authority thereof is from the inward work of the Holy Spirit, bearing witness by and with the word in our hearts. Quote. So when the word of God washes over us, when the prophetic anticipations of Christ and the apostolic explications of Christ wash over us, it is ultimately the job of the Holy Spirit within us to generate full persuasion and assurance of the truth thereof. That's what John is saying here. I told you what I saw, and if you have the Holy Spirit in you, then you believe it. And if you don't, then you don't. Verse 7. For there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood. And these three agree. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For this is the testimony of God that he is born concerning his Son. Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar, because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his Son. Here John is saying that the inward testimony of the Spirit is in full agreement with the outward testimony of the apostles. The truly saved person receives and rejoices in that entire package. That is the faith that overcomes the world. Verse 11. And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. Eternal life is in Jesus, the Jesus of the Bible, the Jesus of the apostolic gospel. John's been saying that since the beginning. In John 5, 21, he says, For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. So this eternal life is in Jesus to give. And if he gives it to you, it begins now and it extends even beyond our experience of death. 
Jesus said that in John 6.40. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. This has been the substance of Christian hope since the very beginning. The Venerable Bede, writing in the 8th century and commenting on John's epistle, says here, John says that God has given us eternal life. And remember that he was saying this at a time when he was still in the flesh and subject to physical death. But God gave us eternal life in exactly the same way as he has given us the power to become his children. Right now, we live on earth in the hope of his promise, which we will receive in its fullness after we die and go to be with him, closed quote. That is the faith that overcomes the world. A faith that looks back on all that God has done for us in the life and death of Jesus Christ, and a faith that looks forward to all that is ours now and to all that we will enjoy in Christ and with Christ for all eternity. Verse 13, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. This is the purpose statement for the entire letter. Remember, these folks have been destabilized by the departure of the schismatics and by the claims that they were making. They, they were claiming to have special knowledge and advanced insight. They were claiming that they were having spiritual experiences. And so these folks that John is writing to were starting to wonder, are we on the right path or are they? Are, are we the real Christians or are they? And so John has written this letter primarily to reassure them that they are, in fact, walking on the path that leads to life. They are manifesting all the expected markers of truly saved and regenerate people. The Pillar New Testament commentary puts it this way. It says, They were the ones who continued in the teaching first proclaimed by the eyewitnesses. They were the ones who continued to obey the commands of the Lord. And they were the ones who loved the children of God, which is the essential mark of those who have eternal life, close quote. So I wrote these things to you that you may know that you are the true children of God and this is the path of eternal life. Verse 14, and this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of him. Here, John makes the same basic connection that he made at the end of chapter 3. He wants them to know that they are truly the children of God. And he wants them to know what that implies. Since you are the children of God, then you can go to your heavenly Father and expect to receive a warm welcome. Assurance of faith should lead to confidence in prayer. And that should lead to powerful gospel ministry. He gets into that in verse 16. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask and God will give him life. To those who commit sins that do not lead to death. There is sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. So here, John is telling the church how to put their prayers to work. Part of the confusion here is that this illustration, in essence, pulls double duty. It is, in the first place, an illustration of what one can do with these powerful prayers. And then it leads into the issue of 
perseverance. If, in essence, if you have the seed of God in you, and if you have these powerful prayers from God's people on your behalf, then you will not sin unto death. Uh, the seed of God will draw you back. The prayers of God's people will draw you back. That's the transition. But here John is illustrating the initial principle that we have powerful prayers that we can put to work for gospel purpose. If you see a brother, a fellow believer straying into sin, then by all means pray for him. With your intimate access and with him or her having the seed of God within them, such a person will surely be restored. Remember, believers sin, but they do not persist in sin. They are not ultimately overcome by sin. They are driven out and pulled out by the combined power of believing prayer and the inward operation of the Holy Spirit. Not so the person who sins unto death. Here John is thinking about the apostates, those who have rejected Christ. They don't have the seed of God in them. And here John says not to pray for them. They are without hope. F.F. Bruce understands John here to be saying basically the same thing as we find in the epistle to the Hebrews. He says, with regard to such men, John may have felt much as the writer to the Hebrews did in another situation, that it was impossible to renew them to repentance. Renunciation of the apostolic witness to Christ and his saving power was indeed a sin unto death. Close quote. Verse 18. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who was born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. He who was born of God is, of course, Jesus Christ. In John's gospel, Jesus is committed to protecting and preserving his own. In John 17, Jesus makes mention of that in his high priestly prayer. He says, while I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them. Not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction that the scripture might be fulfilled, John 17, 12. So other than in the case of Judas, who was destined to betray the Lord, Jesus has always been committed to guarding and keeping his flock. He will lose none of them. That work, that protecting, preserving work continues now from the right hand of the throne of God. Hallelujah. Verse 19. We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding, so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. As generally in the Johannine Corpus, John speaks in binary terms. A person is either under the power of the evil one or under the power of God. You are either being helped and empowered and guided by the Spirit of God or by the Spirit of Antichrist. John does not seem to put much stock in human freedom. He sees us as needing to be under the lordship of Christ, lest we be swept away by the power of demonic deception. We are lost and weak people in need of a strong Savior. And that is what John has been offering to us. Jesus Christ, the true God and eternal life. Here John, at the end of his epistle, makes a similar claim to the one he made at the end of his gospel. In John 20, he ends on a similar note. He says, Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, 
and that by believing, you may have life in his name. So I wrote my gospel, John says, that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And I wrote my epistle that you may know that you have eternal life in his name. He's a strong Savior and a sure Redeemer. And therefore, John says in the final verse of his epistle, little children, keep yourselves from idols. John Calvin offered a very useful comment on this closing charge. He said, Let us then remember that we ought carefully to continue in the spiritual worship of God so as to banish far from us everything that may turn us aside to gross and carnal superstitions. Close quote. Banish everything far from you that could conceivably turn you aside from the true worship of God through Jesus Christ toward something lesser, something smaller, and something other. That's very good counsel indeed. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord shall stand forever. Thanks be to God. Thank you, friends, for listening to another episode of Into the Word. If you're interested in additional resources or previous episodes and series, you can find those at intotheword.ca. You can also connect with Pastor Paul and other Bible readers on our Into the Word Facebook page. Just type Into the Word into your search bar. If you'd like to contribute to this listener-supported program, go to the website and click the Give bar in the top right-hand corner. Once again, that's intotheword.ca. We hope to see you again real soon right here for another episode of Into the Word.